Hello from the sunny beaches of St. Kitts and Nevis. Welcome to Dextrocardia, your one-stop shop podcast for everything related to life as a Caribbean medical student. I'm your host, Nihal Satyadev, a second-year medical student at the University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed by guests of this podcast do not reflect the opinions or views of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's dive in. So welcome to another episode of Dextrocardia. We're super excited for today's guest. We have newly minted Dr. Krishnan with us today, who just graduated from UMHS, and she actually has a very vibrant extracurricular background. She not only got involved in a number of research projects, but during her basic sciences, she was very involved with student government and was even the president of SGA, which is the Student Government Association here at UMHS. Uh, she's also very involved in other activities such as Indian classical music, traveling, exploring, and even explored so much that she did rotations in Australia. So we're very excited to talk to her today about all of her clinical experiences. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please go ahead and let us know a little bit more about yourself. Wow, thank you for such a wonderful, robust introduction of me. That's something I've never received before. Um, I, I think you did a great job of introducing me and extracurriculars are, as, as you already mentioned, are huge for me. And that's what's kind of led me into seeking out some great opportunities in clinicals, Australia being one of them. And I also did multiple rotations in uh, rural Canada as well as urban Canada. Um, mixed in with many different populations in the U.S. So I was almost always moving. I think every, every uh, month or two I was moving, I would say. <laughs> so just well. before we dive into all of the more specific questions, tell us a little bit about the field that you're interested in and just how you, got, uh, how you came to the process of deciding uh, what match to apply to. Great question. Um, I would say that I didn't really know what I was getting into um, in the beginning. I kind of just did several extracurricular, extracurricular activities in high school that involved elder, elderly and just um, really enjoyed the sciences. So I kind of thought about science-related um, careers like uh, research and any kind of lab work and I also considered medicine were kind of my two big boats um, but I explored certain things so I did some lab work I also did some more volunteering with the elderly um, and with other populations as well and that made me realize that I needed to be on my feet I needed to be on my feet talking to people I couldn't be doing a desk job I couldn't be um, you know alone in a lab just you know I, as much as I respect research, I feel like I need to be the person that's actively talking to people. So that's what kind of led me into the thought of ger becoming a geriatrician, possibly. And I applied for medical school, um, got into University of Medicine and Health Sciences um, after my third year of undergrad. So I didn't complete my undergrad, dived right into medical school. And um, my main interest is in family medicine. And that's really kind of um, a big like it's a lot more all-encompassing than geriatrician is and that's kind of really grown um, because of the 
very unique populations I've worked with in clinical rotations. Um, some of them rural populations, some of them very um, underserved populations, some of them just um, populations that uh, have many more barriers to getting healthcare, like the LGBT population, for example. So uh, those kind of aspects is what really drew me to family medicine as a whole and really serving the underserved populations. So underserved populations and preventative medicine are the two kind of areas that I'm very interested in family medicine. I love that. Being an IMG student and going to UMHS, how did you feel doing clinical rotations in Canada with other Canadian uh, medical students? And even in the US, did you feel at a disadvantage? Did you feel at an advantage? How did you feel? Um, great question. Again, you're hitting me hard right off the bat. <laughs> um, so for UMHS, honestly, they have been phenomenal um, at setting up our clinical rotations. Our core rotations are at some great hospitals with phenomenal teaching faculty, and um, you can really make the most of your rotation while you're there. You can end up, you could do um, some very um, like normal bread and butter stuff, getting a history, getting a physical exam, coming up with a management and plan. Um, but you can also go much more beyond that just because you have these great resources. So um, I, at many times, were, was alongside other US students and I never really felt that I was beneath them or anything. I always felt like I was on the same page sometimes, even having gone to such a different, um, or having had such a different experience in St. Kitts in a population that is already underserved and have limited resources anyway, it was, I think you go into clinical rotations automatically with a different mindset after having lived in a place like St. Kitts. So um, I think a lot of physicians really appreciated that we had a very humanistic um, sort of connection with these uh, patients right off the bat and we were able to try and get around their thinking styles or what their, um, what kind of barriers they had and trying to identify them and connect with them and help them get through those barriers um, on a one-to-one -one basis with the patient. So, yeah, that was, I think, one of the biggest things. And even in Canada, like you were uh, when, uh, asking about in Canada, never really felt that um, I was not up to par with the other students. Um, I just made sure I was always reading around cases um, every day, picking at least one case to review and really dive deep into all aspects of that one disease and then um, if I had any questions I could always ask the, uh, the preceptor the next day and say hey remember that patient we just talked about like I, I was just wondering about this one thing that I was reading about and um, that also shows that you're super engaged so you're engaged and also you're reading around the cases keeping up to par with the other students. So being someone right now who's still completing basic sciences the world of clinical rotation seems like a bit of a black hole. Uh, obviously, I'm at an interesting transition period right now where I'm just doing some clinical medicine classes. So getting an understanding and scope for what it means to take a history, what it means to do a physical examination. How similar are, is the clinical medicine that we learn on the island to the rotations? And more broadly, what is it that we can expect from, like what is expected of us when we're in rotations? 
Okay, uh, great question. Uh, I definitely felt the same way. It did feel like a big black hole after step one, trying to get into clinicals. Um, so I think the mindset is the biggest thing. So with basic sciences, um, you're learning kind of from the bottom up. So you're kind of learning, okay, this is what a normal body is supposed to be like. And if we throw in this one insult, what like learning about the pathophysiology and then leading up to how the person presents, right? And in clinicals, it's going the other way around because you're going to get a patient at some point in the disease course. So a person could have one symptom of the disease, not even all of the presentation of, or the classic features that you have um, seen in basic sciences, for example. So a great example I always take is cirrhosis. So like in basic sciences, you learn all of these manifestations of what cirrhosis looks like, um, but you might only have a patient presenting to you with jaundice. And jaundice can be caused by many other things, um, apart from cirrhosis, apart from other hepatobiliary problems, right? So I think it, it's um, a very different mindset of thinking. And in order to train yourself for that, it, I really always recommend reading around the case, but thinking about the differentials. So, okay, this person has this chief complaint. Okay, what are all of the differentials that you can think of that could have that chief complaint? And how can you tease apart which disease it actually is with the tools that you have, the lab work, the diagnostic test, the best test, and then eventually moving to once you've identified what you think it is, moving towards a management plan. So it's very, very different, I think, from basic sciences in that sense. Um, and I think you asked me something else, but I can't recall what the second part of the question was. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no worries. It was definitely a long-winded question. So the second part was more so just about what is the structure of rotations? Mm. Uh, we, how is it different from, I mean, how, how is it set up? Like, is there something that we have in the first couple of weeks where there's like a training or something just thrown in the fire? You just like sit there next to residents and just absorb things. Like, what does it look like? Okay, great. So um, each school to their own. I've, I've met a lot of students um, in different schools along my clinical rotations. And I think generally most schools will have a um, clinical semester of some kind, so to speak, that kind of shows you how to do a physical, like a basic, full, complete physical exam, um, how to take a basic history from a chief complaint. But this is kind of before like for umhs it's before step one so we have a semester in maine where they will go through virtual clinic which is like they have sessions every week where they review a system so it might be cardiology week one week and there's one day in the week where they will do virtual clinic for cardiology cases so there will be a, a standardized patient and you're going through taking a history and physical exam it is timed and um, you're usually paired with another student where the other student will present the entire case based on what you did and add on any additional questions if they wish to. And there's also a preceptor in the room who will evaluate you and give you feedback then. So that's what we had in UMHS. Um, very privileged to have that. It was great. But it also is um, well before step one. So step one kind of becomes your main goal after this semester. And so after step one is when you actually start using that information from um, the clinical semester. And depending on when you take step one, because some people take a couple months, some people take six months, like people take a very a wide range of time for step one. Um, and so they may or may not have forgotten some of those details. And I think it's very, this one of the starting points is to review all of that. Um, 
And then when you're actually in clinical rotations, you are going to be overwhelmed 100%. Like the first, like the first two, two cores or so, you're kind of finding your feet in the hospital, finding your feet in the clinic. And ultimately to not get overwhelmed, I think the best thing is recognizing that you're going to see anywhere from 10 to 20, maybe even more patients in one day, and that it is literally impossible for a person to sit down and read about every single patient. That is not realistic of your time. Um, I think the uh, biggest advice, as I mentioned before, was that pick one case, pick like a very common case that you see and that you have a link to a specific patient that you saw on that very day. So you're repeating already repetition on this first day. Um, with a patient and then that way you can come up with any questions or just learn the topic really well so that the next time you see it you'll be like oh right i had read about this really well and um so that way it's really pairing the the knowledge that you're reading with the actual patient that you're seeing which honestly helps you so much even in down the road when you're taking ck when you're taking cs those exams will have these kind of classic cases like you do need to know how to um, take that history and navigate with these patients. And you do see similar cases in your tests. So in the CK, like CK and CS, you definitely see cases where you're like, oh, I actually remember a patient I had that I reviewed. So um, really focusing all your attention on one thing, one topic a day, and reviewing everything from risk factors, um, any specific etiologies, any travel history or anything that would be a risk factor, and then getting into the pathophysiology, reviewing that because you learned it in basic sciences, but now you have to learn it in the context of a clinical case and reviewing um, the differential diagnoses and how, how to tell the difference. Like, how come this disease is a little bit different than the other disease? how can I, what tests can I do? Maybe they'll look exactly the same in a clinical picture. And then maybe there's one laboratory feature that will separate them or a diagnostic test that will separate them. So um, taking the opportunity to read is the biggest thing. And then asking those questions. Sometimes you might have to read a lot before you can come up with a good question you want to ask the preceptor that's totally fine you kind of gauge based on the preceptor some preceptors are okay with you uh, answering or asking questions right away and just saying oh i just saw that you did this why did you do that right um, and other preceptors would prefer that you read about the case and present it to them or present a topic to them so uh, preceptors vary some of them are i would say in terms of expectations majority of them will not give you a set expectation. And so that's the piece I think a lot of people are unaware of going into clinical rotations because ultimately these phys physicians, they are amazing teachers, but it's your job to use them as the resources that they are. So, um, and they're busy. They're, they have lots of patients that they're dealing with, right? And if you're able to ask those questions and ask to do hands-on stuff, it gives you an opportunity to be a little bit more prepared when you're in residency. So for example, um, even minor things, uh, minor procedures or things like administering a vaccine, placing a Foley catheter, um, placing an IV line, um, suturing uh, in surgery, like closing in, uh, in surgeries, 
those kind of things, if you ever see an opportunity for it, and even if it's not with the a physician that you're working with, you can always ask the physician, hey, like I've never done an IV line before. Is it okay if I just hop over and do this IV line with this um, nurse? Um, or uh, is it okay if I join you later on because I heard there's this IV line thing? It just shows that you're taking initiative to learn these basic things during medical school when you have the chance. So um, I am a huge proponent of that by like huge. It's so important because you don't want to be putting in your first Ivy line as a first year resident. So if you get the opportunity, take it. And typically what's their reactions when you do go ask them, can I help you with this catheter or can I assist in this procedure? How do they respond to that? Um, most of them are like, oh, wow, yeah, I didn't think about that. Let me, let me help you. And uh, oftentimes the preceptors will even get you connected with someone who would do even more procedures. So it's not just, you know, IVs, you get hooked up to do so many other things too. And it's, it's really, it's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, they're, they're usually very open-minded unless there's a procedure that they really want you to see. Sometimes they'll say, oh, there's actually this procedure on my schedule that I think you should see. And then maybe you could try this, the thing that you're interested in next week or something. They're very open-minded. That's great to hear, especially because I start clinicals in November and I'm already nervous. So this is all such good advice and tips. I'm excited now. But also, you've also made me really come to value the main semester because I feel like prior to the main semester, I had all this information, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to come up with differential diagnosis from symptoms because usually we learn like this is the symptoms for this one disease and you kind of tear it off and move on when you're studying. But I feel like in that main semester, I've really come to like look at symptoms and be able to come with that differential diagnosis. And now I'm also grateful that I learned both the doctoring aspect in Maine that we learned and that presenter role and being able to present a case because mm. it sounds like you did a lot of that as well in clinicals. Yeah, so that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something, there's, I think uh, for UMHS students, there's a guideline for what an oral presentation should look like, and it's very concise and to the point. Some preceptors in Maine, because I know some, uh, you all get like, I think four weeks or something once a day with a preceptor, some preceptors will ask you to do oral presentations then, but I would say the majority don't. Um, so you really get into that when you're doing clinical rotations, and particularly when you're in a hospital rotation when you're doing rounds. So um, a typical day I would say on a hospital round would kind of start off with rounds in the morning. So you're going with your entire team. There's going to be interns, there's going to be senior resident, there might be a, the attending with you, and there could be other medical students. That's kind of generally what a team would look like in the hospital. And your job usually is to round on your specific patients that you are following. So you might have one or two patients based on where you are on your clinical um, trajectory. Um, and so, and you can build that up over the course of that specific rotation as well, based on how well you do. But you have to see those patients most of the time before rounds and check in with those patients, see how they're doing, how have their symptoms improved and um, kind of um, going having reviewed the plan because the plan will uh, there's going to be a soap note usually for every patient every day so you can review the soap note any changes to plan that have happened connecting with the patient to make sure that that symptom is dealt with or that they got a certain medication that was a medication change that was made the prior day so all of those kind of updates and also a very brief like couple liner um, introduction about the patient is typically done on rounds. And if you're following a patient, you are expected to know what kind of medications they're taking and what they're taking it for. 
Um, some, some people require you to know dosages, but typically not. It's more for the understanding piece. Okay, why is this person taking this particular medication? Why are they going to be switched to a different medication? Do they have a certain side effect? Like being aware of those kind of things, because attendings can sometimes ask you, oh, why were they switched to this? And you should be aware of that. So knowing your patients inside out for your hospitalist rotations is very uh, very much key, but also practicing those oral presentations out loud. Um, just kind of like something simple, like Mr. M is a 67-year-old man who has a past medical history that is significant for, and just including the basic, the ones related to that case, and then diving into initially presented with this, now is being treated for this kind of, like it's a very simple kind of thing, but you need practice for sure. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that in Maine, they emphasize making us practice so often. It sounds like it really does come into play. So I'm glad for that. And before, I want to make sure that we do touch on this before this ends, but you've done so much during clinicals. You've mentioned that you've done some research and you've obviously taken a lot of initiative to go above and beyond. But how would you say for us future students entering clinicals, how can we stand out during our clinical rotations? Okay, so um, apart from actually shining in your clinical rotations and getting every opportunity you can to do hands-on things, um, including the pap smears and stuff, which I didn't mention that you can do, um, apart from all of that, there's the extracurricular piece. So for the extracurricular piece, generally, I think it's good to have some level of involvement, not necessarily every single place you go, because that's impossible to do, um, but at least having some a good connection with an organization or having done some health fairs even if you have for example uh, just one week between two rotations and I presume like presuming you'll be moving to a new place after your move or like before your move maybe you can squeeze in a health fair or some kind of community event that shows that you're really involved um, and that you are interested in serving the community and the people around you so those kind of basic ones can be easily found there are some good websites there's this one called I think allforgood.com um, that actually is uh, a good one where you can put in the address of where you are and it'll pop up with a bunch of community volunteer opportunities. It doesn't necessarily even have to be medical. Like it, it can just be anything that is involving speaking to people and interacting with people. Um, other useful uh, uh, experiences that you can have is uh, like volunteering at a hospice and palliative care facility. Uh, that is a really valuable, I think, experience to have for most people. Most people are not aware of the depth of palliative and hospice, and it does play into all specialties in some level. Um, and it really shows that you can put yourself in a vulnerable situation and um, not like avoid it. You're actually, um, you know, addressing it and exposing yourself to it so that you'll have more skills down the road. So um, I did that. I did do vo uh, some volunteering in uh, Michigan, I believe it was. Yeah. And then, and I liked it so much um, that I actually progressed doing a palliative and hospice rotation in Canada. It was a, I would say, semi-rural rotation in St. John, New Brunswick. And it was phenomenal. So that's like one of those rare elective opportunities. If you're able to find it, it's honestly great. And that's just an example. There are other, many other interesting specialties that I think are very relevant and trying to gearing, 
try to gear it towards what you're looking for, right? Um, so I found that interest along the way through doing extracurriculars. That's the thing. Extracurriculars can be like a kind of stepping stone or like uh, a way for you to realize what you really like as well. So um, extracurriculars really helped out with the uh, advocacy piece and the preventative medicine piece that I'm interested in. So, so getting into what you were saying about research, uh, research, of course, is another great extracurricular to have. And there are multiple different ways you can have that. So I kind of went about um, what was plausible for me because I was moving all the time. I went about doing case reports. So how to approach that is uh, varies. Some of them might just come to you. So you might actually see a patient that is not presenting like a normal normal um, case of that disease or something and they look a little bit different than the disease so it's already a unique um, condition or a presentation of the condition uh, so it might just come to you and you might be like oh this is an interesting case let me talk to an attending and see if they would be interested in, in uh, publishing or uh, working on an abstract for this case to get it published eventually um, another option, which is what I kind of went around, was asking residents and asking physicians if they happen to have a case report that they would like to write up. Because a lot of physicians, like I said before, they're very busy and many of them are actually quite academic oriented as well, but they don't have the time to write up their cases. So oftentimes they'll have these case reports that are probably very interesting case reports that just haven't been written up because they don't have the time. So I did that um, and there was a resident who gave me kind of a list of case reports that uh, or cases that he thought would be interesting and then you would take that you can choose a case kind of and come up with a way to discuss it what was so unique about it. So you do need to delve into that patient's chart and read um, read more about it and um, take decide on what angle you want to take because it can be a totally new presentation of the disease or maybe you're proposing a new uh, method of how to manage the d disease that has never been tried before but was tried in this case so you have to really think about what is the norm and what about your case is different it could be a very minor difference and that can still get published so that's something i didn't really know i think people think that case reports are this like one-off bizarre presentation of a disease, but that doesn't need to be the case at all. So, um, and even if your case does not get published, that is still counts towards your residency applications, which I only recently knew um, since I'm going through the process now. So uh, it's useful if you, as long as you submit it to an actual organization, it can be listed. It shows that you took the initiative to do that case report and come up with an actual manuscript. And they're not long documents by any means. They're usually a couple pages, two or three pages tops. And there's a, uh, you present the case and then there's, there's, there's usually an intro uh, case presentation. And then at the end, there's a discussion of what you um, learned or something that was different. So yeah, and the other kind of piece that some people do is re research electives. Uh, so that's a little bit more formal and you can get your name on an actual uh, publication um, for, and you might've been doing data entry or gathering certain information from people's charts that they gave you access to. So that's, I think, a more typical um, kind of research experience that a lot of people have. Some of them will be volunteer experiences outside of clinical rotations, which is also, quite possible you could get your name on it. Um, 
And then the kind of, I guess, highest level of research would be to create your own research project and doing that. But being aware that it's very time consuming and oftentimes you need to be in like one site to be able to have access to the medical records and such to make it reasonable for you. So one thing I love going back to something that you were saying earlier was the fact that uh, you spent so much time in palliative care, which is something very close to my work and my heart. And I think it's very uh, relevant, especially for the global trends that we're seeing in aging. So very cool that that's a passion of yours as well uh, and something that we can explore in our non-core rotations, which brings me to ask you what are the main differences between core rotations and elective rotations both in terms of how they're set up and also in terms of how to align themselves so that they're matched with your interests uh, and finally kind of as in addition to that question tell us about how we do rotations in australia <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. So let's start off with the basic difference between cores and electives. So cores are basically rotations that every student has to do. You need to have some level of basic understanding of um, your, your internal medicine, obstetrics, pediatric surgery, psych, and family med. Those are the six that our school has. In the US, they actually have neurology as a required one as well for a lot of schools. So uh, I know our school is a huge proponent of uh, encouraging you to do neurology elective if possible. Uh, and hospice and palliative care is also encouraged from my understanding um, with our school. But not necessary uh, by any means. I think um, ultimately you have to choose what's best for you. So there's kind of, I think, from talking to a lot of students and being involved with student stuff, I've, I've kind of grouped, I guess, people into two categories. There can be someone like me who's, who didn't really know what specific specialty I wanted to go into when I finished, when I think around the fourth core or so, I was starting to get worried about setting up electives because I didn't even know what I wanted to do, right? And then there's the other category of people that before they start rotations, they know exactly what they want to do. Like I want to do surgery or I want to do OBG. So they, it's easier for them to pick out what electives they want to do. So if you're that person that has already like a clear mindset, you can definitely go ahead and book your electives. Um, I would say it's sometimes beneficial to uh, save up your because uh, you can only do at UMHS, you only do two electives uh, in one specialty. Uh, for so yeah, so if you wanted to do obstetrics, you have your obstetrics core, and then you can have two obstetrics electives. Um, and those generally, I think it's better to keep it closer to the next cycle of applications, just so that you have letters somewhere around there. So I would say like april may so it's a more recent letter the date is more current kind of deal or if you had um, earlier rotations you can always ask your preceptors to um, submit it later on that's another option too just so that it looks like they're more recent letters and really shows that you had a very recent um great uh of some so that's kind of uh, the one group. And then the other group, like me, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I thought I would take some rotations that were 
that had floated around. Lots of people mentioned ER and lots of people mentioned doing sub-eyes. So sub-eyes, sub-internships are basically rotations that are giving you more responsibility. So you're an intern, as an intern in residency, you have all this responsibility, you're holding um, several patients, you're taking a sub-internship is essentially doing, giving the same level of care, but under, uh, under supervision with maybe three or four, for example, three or three or four patients. You work your way up. Some people will do one or two, but they're doing everything for that patient and um, working directly with the attending or working directly with the senior resident, checking like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. Do you agree with me? And getting it signed off. Um, and so that could be what you're doing. And um, in other rotations, you might be doing even more. You might be taking on four or five patients, which I actually did get to do in an internal medicine um, sub-internship. So sub-internships are more intense for sure. They're closer to what a resident would look like. And, but it's great because it transitions you from the core rotations when you're getting exposed to a lot of diseases for the first time. And then you have this uh, elective that actually gives you some responsibility so that's one thing um, er was another big one that i have been told many times is a great one to do because you see a lot more acute cases uh, and it can be very severe things um, life-threatening kind of conditions like mis and strokes or it can be a basic cold for a patient who doesn't have a family doctor so it can, it's just such a wide range. And in emergency departments, you also tend to get a lot more hands-on experience because you get to see the patients. They're often busy places and you can squeeze in getting some IV lines and you know, um, phlebotomy and things like that, putting in a Foley catheter, that kind of thing happens in the ER often. Uh, so yeah, so definitely a great learning opportunity. So I kind of went for the more general ones and then I picked one or two things that I'd heard along the way or found an interest in like hospice and palliative care. Um, another route you can take is also focusing on populations you want to work with. So I did that as well because I wanted to explore what a rural population would like look like because family doctors in rural settings can be everything. Like they can be the one that's running the ER, they can be running inpatient as well as outpatient services. So I got to do a rotation in Canada in Newfoundland, which was exactly that. The clinic was within the hospital and the clinic family doctors would round on their patients every morning that were already on service. And if you were the one taking the ER shift, then you would handle the ER patients and admit them. And whoever was their actual family doctor would take over during the morning rounds. So you'd have such great continuity of care. I just love that so much because ultimately your, your entire management will be known by one doctor who knows you really well. So I love that. And the other population I got to work with was Australia. Um, in Australia, I was really drawn to it. So my sister, the connection was because my sister's in medical school in Australia. And she worked with this physician she told me about. And I was like, oh my God, I want to do this. Um, and this doctor is a family doctor who uh, focuses on refugee health and sexual health. It's a very specific population that I've never worked with before. Um, Refugee health 
was always interesting to me because there's automatically the language barrier. So learning how to use interpreters properly and learning uh, about catch up vaccines and things like that, transitioning them into a good level of health to be able to sustain themselves in a new community. Um, so that was really neat. And then the other population was sexual health, which involved uh, working with the LGBT community and um, talking about transgender services to patients, talking about um, uh, medical and surgical terminations of pregnancy and things like that. So very sensitive topics, but just a very new look of what family medicine is. So you might be able to find totally different family medicine rotations or totally different obstetrics rotations based on where you do the rotation. Um, so that's another kind of piece I always think of. And I think you'd also asked me about how to go about doing these. So I'll briefly throw that in there. Uh, so for UMHS, you can email our clinical coordinator directly for rotations that are already uh, set up. So if we have affiliated hospitals, you can ask um, our clinical coordinators if they have a specific rotation you're looking for in this area, or just do they have this elective at all? Uh, or you could tell them, hey, I want to focus my electives in this one location. What electives do you have in this location? That's another route you could take. Um, for the international rotations in Canada, you have to go through this portal. It is expensive. It's called the AFMC student portal. And there's a fee to set up an account. I think it's like I think when I got it, I think it's $500 or something expensive. And then after that, you have any additional fees um, to actually apply to different electives. So you can go through, choose a university. So you could choose University of Toronto, and then you could pick uh, electives in there that you're interested in. For those, I would highly recommend um, applying really early and just giving your keeping your options open if that's something that you're interested in. So I started applying, I want to say, maybe halfway through my course and I got accepted much later. So it's like six months later or something like that. I was like, okay, I'm going to have an elective. So it was very different. Um, but I found that for the Canadian ones, if it was a rural rotation, I think there are fewer people who are interested in those. So you might be able to get the rural ones easier. So yeah, I had, and also special populations like hospice and palliative, I don't think a lot of people took. So it was easy for me to change timings and stuff to fit it into my schedule for that. Uh, so that's the Canadian one. But at the moment, the current climate of COVID, of course, just being aware of, you know, are these electives even offered through this time now? Um, if you're a Canadian citizen, it might be a little bit easier. Um, I am a Canadian citizen, so I guess it would have worked for me if I were in this situation, but I think it would be easier for a Canadian. For the Australian one, that was really, of course, a setup thing. It was totally different from uh, the Canadian ones. You can actually do similar things to what I did with Australia in the US, I think, currently. So if you happen to find a preceptor that you really like, or you've heard about this preceptor, uh, working on a certain population or a specialty that you're interested in, you can approach the preceptor. You can approach the preceptor, ask them, hey, like, I really like your field. I really would like to spend four weeks as part of my medical education with you. Uh, are you, would you be willing to evaluate me? Because that's like one of the biggest things that they have to agree to do. They have to be supervising you. They have to have some, some level of, uh, some kind of curriculum for you that you should be doing. So Australia was, 
kind of out there and our school didn't really know very much about it. So I got my um, preceptor to write a curriculum. It was a, like a one page curriculum of what would be expected of me when I was there. And that was approved by the school. So you can do that with any, like it, it, you can pretty much pick any location if COVID was not around, but I think you can still, that, still do that in the US to set up your own rotations if it's not an affiliate already with our school. That's really exciting to hear, especially, I was gonna ask you, you keep answering my questions as, which is perfect. Like I was gonna <laughs> ask you with COVID, cause I'm Canadian and I would love to like do a rotation in Newfoundland. So I was thinking like with COVID, do you think that'd still be possible? But it's probably, I guess, we'd have to wait and see what happens in the next few months. But yeah, that's exciting. First off, where are you like located in Canada? Where do you live? Like where's home for you? So home for me is Vancouver. That's where I am right now. And yeah, I grew, I actually grew up in um, like early stages of my life in Dubai. And then I spent most of my life here. And, Very um, cool. So you literally went all the way across to Newfoundland. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I went all over the place. I think I was in the middle of rotations in the US and then I had to like fly to Newfoundland, come back and then fly to New Brunswick. It was, it was, I was legitimately leaving every month to a new place for electives. But that's, that's really not exciting. something that everybody wants. You know, some mm -hmm. people... Um, you also have to think about what you can afford and what is more realistic for you. Do you have transportation and things like that too? So you can always work within where you're going to be. So some people choose kind of one big hub and do all of their rotations there because that is um, affordable, more convenient for them. But even within that, you can explore different communities. So there's definitely ways to diversify your uh, clinical rotations regardless of what route you take. I like that. I like that there's a lot of flexibility with that and based on your personal preferences. Now that you're applying for your residency and everything, I'm assuming you got a lot of reference letters from your clinical experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and when's the right time to ask a preceptor for a reference letter? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, we have a great resource and somebody by the name of Patrick McCormick, who is amazing in our school, who tells us a little bit more about these LORs. And I think the biggest thing that I took from him was that it's important. There's no like perfect time. I think even when you're in your course, you can be asking for letters of recommendation. And it's not it's not like you will have an amazing connection with every preceptor you work with, right? You're, you're, they're different personalities. They have a different schedule. You don't know what's going on through their head. But as long as you put in your effort and show them that you are really interested in everything that's going on in the hospital or the clinic with them, reading around the cases, doing as many hands-on procedures as possible, and really reaching out even beyond just working with the preceptor if it's possible in the hospital to do more things that really shows initiative on your part and the actions speak for themselves so i think if for example i got a letter of recommendation from the second rotation i did it was my first time being in a, in a hospital setting literally had never stepped into a hospital for any other reason not even volunteering in my whole life even though i tried i tried so hard um but uh that was my first time so i didn't even know how teams of doctors worked like i didn't know internal interns and seniors and attendings there's this hierarchy there's this team that works together didn't know any of that and I managed to get a letter of recommendation from there. I was there for three months. Um, 
with a 12 week rotation that is required of us. And I ended up doing my first case report there. So it really just shows like you could start off knowing nothing, but it really is about the amount of effort that you put in over the trajectory of that one rotation and showing them your initiative. And if you do that, how you go about approaching it, I would want to say is toward the end of your rotation, you could, if it is a longer rotation, maybe you could ask them a couple weeks before the end of your rotation, or maybe within your last week of the rotation or the last day when you're sitting down with them for evaluation to uh, kind of uh, ask them if they would be, you could expressing that how important this rotation was to you. I think that's one route I always took. Like I, sometimes I said like blatantly, I honestly did not know anything in the beginning and I've come a huge way in this rotation by doing this, this and this, like reminding them of things that I did and how much I valued the rotation and the time I spent with them. And then asking them, following that with, would you be willing to write a letter of recommendation for me for residency? So um, some people send it via email. I personally really preferred talking to the person at the end of my rotation. Uh, and that worked out pretty well for me. Um, I don't think I had any other major, um, loopholes or anything to get through, but for, I just asked, and also I followed it very quickly with an email. So I'd followed it with the email state, like reiterating how much I really enjoyed the, uh, rotation because it was true. Like I <laughs> wasn't making anything up. Um, and um, I would attach my CV to it and you can go about, so there's, there's this thing called a token that most people don't really know about until you're actually in the residency application times. But if you want to, you can get a, uh, an ERAS token. Uh, if you go onto the ECFMG um, website through OASIS, you can get the token and then you have to have a separate account for my ERAS and input that token. Once you input that token, there's a location where you can add LORs. You can add an entry, you put in the name of the doctor, and it generates this uh, letter of recommendation request form that you need to send to that doctor because we are not supposed to see our LORs. So they will be uploading it directly onto um, this platform, which you will use down the road for residency. So the only irritating thing about um, that is <laughs> that you, if you don't want to pay for it, because it is, I think, 100 and I don't know the exact cost, but it was around $150, something like that. Uh, so, and you have to get it every year. And the, I think the earliest you can get it for a cycle is in the beginning of June or July, something around that time, where when the previous match has officially concluded, usually May 31st. And then you can get this uh, token if you wanted to and set it, send out the letter request form. So it's already out. And if those preceptors are ready to write those LORs, they, can, they have the information fresh about you. They can write that letter of recommendation where they're not in a rush to get it in right before residency application deadlines and they can upload it directly. And these LORs can be saved um, into the following cycle if it is the following cycle that you are going to actually apply for, in which case you would have to buy another token. But you do need, when that time comes around, you get emails from ERAS reminding you that you need to certify and submit your application, even though it's really just your LORs and then um, it will transfer over to your actual application. Yeah. Well, I want to say on behalf of everyone listening, this was probably one of the most informative episodes yet. Uh, <laughs> I personally learned a lot, and I really appreciate all the time that you spent with us and giving us 
so many very practical and translatable tips, not only in rotations, but also things that we can think about even in our basic sciences in order to prepare for rotations, uh, as well as setting ourselves up to do well at the match. So is there any other final topics that you wanted to touch upon? Um, well, while I was talking about LORs, I just remembered something that another way when you're in clinical rotations to really find out how you are doing in the preceptor's eyes as well is to ask for feedback. I know this is not something people are comfortable with necessarily. Um, our school has this nice thing called a, a midterm evaluation, which is, I don't think necessarily required, but I used it. Uh, so they actually have a form that says mid rotation eval, and then you can take it to your preceptor and say, hey, like our school would like to see how I'm doing and um, sit down and be like, what can I improve on? Um, how, how do you think I'm doing kind of deal? And, it re and it's a great time right in the middle of your rotation to see how you're doing and what more you can do before your final eval. And again, it shows initiative. So there's that bonus as well. And you, uh, when you get to the end of your rotation as well and you have the time for final evals, some preceptors will actually sit down and go through your evaluation with you versus others won't. So if you don't see like a meeting coming up where they're gonna sit down and talk to you, then you can ask them. You can follow up and say, hey, like really enjoyed this rotation. I'd like to hear if you have any specific feedback on me to see how I can improve in my future clinical rotations. I love that. So thank you so much for uh, hopping on again. Uh, for everyone that's listening, if you have any other ideas for topics we should cover, guests we should bring on, please shoot us an email at dextrocardia.podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at dextrocardiapc. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Krishnan.